This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnerVarsity Press. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. I want to have David on the podcast because he was a white pastor. This is like my, it's weird. You have to have like Ask a Black Person podcast. <laughs> this is like my Ask a White Pastor question podcast. And what I mean is, is You like, asked him to represent like, all white people. How do white people feel when this happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it wasn't just that. It was like in the present moment, it's really easy for white pastors to kind of put their head in the sand and hope for this present moment to pass. Or let's just denounce both sides and call for Christian unity. And I wanted someone who was like, no, like, there's a race problem in America. It's rooted in injustice. And this is how I can do it. And so I wanted to listen to someone who was really intentional about discipling a multi-ethnic church as a white pastor to deal seriously with issues of injustice. I have friends with a lot of black people who are talking about justice. And so there's a long conversation about, like, what's it like as a black person to be in these spaces, to be maligned. And we know that when they're all white spaces in which we're not invited, we know that we're kind of criticized. Because, so like, our skin keeps us out of it. He's someone who actually is invited into those spaces that we never enter. And so what I wanted to hear was, well, what is it like to be a white pastor who's in majority white spaces sometimes, who's dealing with issues of injustice. And he talked about sometimes being like implicated in like race traitors. And like, what is that like emotionally? I can't check out of being black. I can't say, oh man, I'm tired of racism. I'm just going to like stop experiencing it. No, like mm-hmm. I'm going to be black until the day I die. I mean, after the day I die, I'll be, I'll be black in the resurrection, praise God. But he's someone who could check out anytime he wanted to. Yeah. He could just say, this costs too much. What is it like to have someone who says... This is the journey I want to follow through to the end. You're in Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. When you came down for that uh, for that protest, you were like where it started is like half mile from where our church office is. We've been in the city since 2008, uh, and we moved we moved from North Carolina in 2000, which is where my wife's from. She's from all her people are in the South. I went to school in North Carolina, which is where the two of us met. Where did you go to school? Very small uh, PC USA school called Montreat College. The only reason I heard of Montreat is because, like, when you're on the job market, right? I remember seeing openings there all of the time. It's, just, it's random. If you are Presbyterian, you sometimes know Montreat, or if you're like a Billy, a big Billy Graham person, because that's his. That's like where his hometown it was. Like he and he and Ruth had a house there. She was a member of the Presbyterian Church in Montreat. Oh, yeah. So, so are you from the South then? No, I was a missionary kid. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Venezuela and Ecuador. My dad was a missionary pilot. And so uh, from the age of two, we lived in Venezuela, uh, a few different little, few different places, and then Ecuador for a couple of years. And then 
went to, uh, we moved back to Southern California when I was going into high school. So all four years of high school were in, in Southern California. So what was, what was it like in coming from Southern, from the mission field to um, Southern California? The, the, to be honest, the bigger change was actually from Venezuela to Ecuador, because in Venezuela, we were, you know, we were living in a pretty remote area um, that you could really only get to by river or, you know, very, very small airplane. Uh, and, and then we moved to Quito, which was, you know, very large uh, city, you know, capital city. So that was a bigger change, probably culturally. I can say from Quito to Southern California, it actually didn't seem, I mean, language stuff was a little different, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal. I'm not going to lie to you. This does not sound like the origin story. Someone's going to move to Chicago and start talking about justice. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I want to skip forward past all of this stuff to say, okay, then you're overseas in Ecuador and then Venezuela or Venezuela, then mm-hmm, Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Venezuela then, first, then Ecuador. Venezuela, then Ecuador. You go to high school in Southern California is that like a pretty diverse school? Like what was the high school? Well, here's what like, so, so these were, uh, I graduated high school in 1995. So if you can place that in your, in your kind of historical that's, perspective. Uh, that's um, uh, Rodney King, right? Exactly. So these are, these are the Rodney King years. These are the OJ Simpson years. And, and, you know, this wouldn't have made the black national people news don't, as, as Black much. people don't talk about OJ. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying this is what was on television. This, this was, you know, breaking know. news on I'm a regular saying, basis. Like, we in the, in the OJ thing. We were kind of having a moment as a black community. We had been through a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we look back and go, yeah. man, that was not the guy we might want to ride for. I'll leave that alone. <laughs> so yes, you were there. there you were there during OJ, and then and then uh, and then uh, immigration was just going uh, was a huge controversial uh, you know discussion at that point in Southern California. There's legislation being passed that was you know uh, banning the children of undocumented immigrants from atten- attending uh, public school. Um, so, so this was like my, my introduction to, to race in America, you know, coming from, from South America. And I, I can't tell you exactly how much I was processing it then, but I remember all of that very clearly. And in some ways, I think formed a lot of the questions I started asking. Later so you on. were how old in um, 94, 95 then? Senior right. Also? So wow, how old are you? Like, you know, sophomore, junior, high school, 15, 16, Okay, we, we might be the same age because like I remember Rodney King too. Yeah, I mean, how could you, how could you not? I mean, it was such a you know, such a stark event just captured right there, you know, on, on video and, you know, rolling over and over and over again. One of the things that was interesting, because I think I, I wrote, does it come in my book? Um, I, it, I wrote about it somewhere. It's so funny at this point, I don't remember what's in the book, race what's in an article mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. is I did some research on it. And like, it's crazy how random it was. So there was someone who happened to be filming, like he had like a straight up video camera. Right, he have, right. And so, like now, it feels like very normal for everything to be on tape. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we had like this actual video of this event, that, and, and one of the things that I said is that it wasn't that it was new, at least in the African American context, it was just a public manifestation of this thing that right. we seen over that we had talked about within our community. So to see it on tape was a strong confirmation. So I remember how I felt. So you at least were aware of it. And so, do you have any like concrete? ideas of how this intersects with your faith at this point are you a christian and yeah i'm certainly a christian and and you know kind of self-consciously so um i'm i'm interested these are late high school years i'm interested in ministry at some point i sort of have some imagination for that i wasn't interested in church ministry at all um i think having grown up in in a mission missionary family i had this idea that church was sort of this benign necessity you know it wasn't bad but it's like it wasn't where the action was um but yeah i did want to do ministry stuff i didn't have an imagination for what you know we would talk about as racial justice 
justice, racial reconciliation today. Um, you know, there was some diversity in our in our neighborhood and our school, but I, you know, I wasn't making those connections yet. Uh, that that would definitely come later. Well, so it came when you went to Mont Billy Graham's house in Montreat, and then was that <laughs> your that Damascus Billy, Road experience? Had that Billy Graham moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, not so much. Um, again, I think I'm 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 becoming aware. I'm having conversations. I'm learning. I think I still at that point am, am drawn to, uh, you know cross-cultural experiences outside of the country. Um, you know, so I did some short-term mission stuff, led some trips during uh, during college, but it, it really was, so I did a three-month internship in Bolivia um, in, in college in a city called Cochabamba and worked with a missionary couple with the local church there. And they, they suggested that I go to Wheaton uh, for graduate school if I was going to pursue overseas missions kind of long-term. And uh, so, so my wife and I, you know, did that. We, we got married out of college, took a year, and then moved up to Wheaton. And, and what happened then pretty quickly was that I met uh, a, a guy who's now, you know, my best friend, uh, Michael Washington, in this class. He was one of, he was the only black person in the class there at Wheaton, probably the only person of color. And he's a lifelong Southside Chicago guy. And so as as Maggie and I, as my wife and I are getting to know Chicago, we're kind of getting it to know know the city through his perspective and his uh, his wife's perspective, who's also a long, long uh, life, lifelong Chicago person. And so, you know, we weren't doing just the go down and hang out in Grant Park and see the sights on the Magnificent Mile. We were getting a, a more interesting, accurate view of the city and kind of understanding some of the dynamics of segregation, some of the history there. And what I tell people was like when when Michael kind of explained to me how Chicago worked, I just believed him. And when, you know, other other friends uh, who lived a long time in Chicago described some of their experiences with, you know, racial segregation or, or racism, I just believed them. And that that led me to want to understand, you know, more and, and why these things work the way they do. This might be a bad question. but I want to ask it anyway. I, I never understand like cause I grew up in the black church. And I'm in, like, I, I work in an evangelical institution, but I don't understand, like, how, may I put it, you move through America and not see this. Right. And so you're sitting at Montreal. I mean, you're sitting at, like, a church. And I just heard this, that, like, things like Rodney King would happen and, like, churches wouldn't talk about it. Oh, right, or sure. you would go through college and, like, these things wouldn't come up. So, like, how are you making it through? college and not seeing it like what is it like maybe i'll put it like this what is it like to be in an all-white space completely oblivious to these racial dynamics like what does that space feel like as you look back on it like say your college days i mean was it not was it off the radar so I don't think for me it was completely off the radar. I don't. I certainly continue to kind of grow into to my understanding. Um, I, again, I think like during high school I was thinking more about uh, immigration. I was. I was. I mean, the, the kind of sort of slander that was being used against. Um, you know, Latino, Latina uh, folks in, in Southern California, that that's, that's where I was spending time, you know, trying to understand that and, and sort of get my head around how is it that Christian people could, could talk this way and could have these sorts of assumptions um, a, a about their neighbors. Um, yeah, I, I remember, I remember in, um, at Montreal, I guess it was my freshman year, I, I remember when uh, the second Rodney King verdict uh, came out. Because um, there was there was two right there was the first that kind of acquitted most of the officers, yeah. uh, and then the second. And 
the retrial. And I remember the different reactions between the, the, the black kids on the floor and the white kids on the floor. And just thinking like, oh, this is really, this is really something, just these completely different worlds that people are inhabiting, that they would have such strongly, strong different emotional reactions to this, um, to this event. So I, I, I'm not gonna lie, man. I mean, I think, I think I, I was pretty oblivious. I think I, I existed in, in these majority white spaces that tended to think about um, when they, when, when we thought about issues of, of, of disparity or race, uh, it was, it was more, um, you know, it was more at the lens of what was happening outside of the country than, than what was happening right next to our neighbors. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of classic thing of, you know, evangelicals being deeply committed to overseas missions and oblivious to the, the lived experiences of their actual neighbors. One of the things that I talk about um, a lot, at least in our tradition, I'm an Anglican. I would say that, you know, if you think about like an Anglican bishop in the global South, it is not at all controversial for us to support them when they're dealing with things like um, tribalism or political corruption or economic devastation. And so you have these bishops who are both spiritual and in some sense political leaders in their communities. And that is not understood as being political in like American circles. But then when you have like in actual, the actual country in which we live, we have this strong bifurcation. So you at least you're at least aware maybe of some of this cognitive dissonance in the in the back of your mind. But how do you go then from being interested in overseas missionary work to being a pastor in the suburbs? We said you were in the suburbs of then Chicago. Yeah, accurate? like the very affluent suburbs. Um, we uh, we started attending a, a non denominational church in uh, in Glen Ellen, which is right next to Wheaton, uh, during those graduate school years. And uh, despite it being in an affluent suburb, it was actually a pretty blue collar church. The the, the pastor came from a, a pretty blue collar um, environment in New Jersey, and uh, he and I became friends. And the church hired me to clean toilets while I was in graduate school, which was you know just a perfect job for me during those years. And um, you know, really received my call to ministry there because again I was going into that that time thinking I, I don't really want to spend much time with the local church but this was a church that I, I you know pretty down to earth pastor super down to earth had a, a relatively large group of uh, women and men who were experiencing homelessness who were worshiping with the church uh, most Sundays and I, I just kind of experienced something that was you know pretty attractive I was taking some ecclesiology courses at the time that were reframing how I was thinking about the church. And so it wasn't though, it wasn't as if I, I really wanted to be at a church in the suburbs. It was like this church had kind of welcomed us in during that season and had given me a shot to, you know, preach my first sermon and to serve and to lead in some ways that I probably had no business doing uh, and, and really affirmed me over those years. But there was always this, this kind of itch, like, I, you know, like the suburbs and particularly like, like majority white suburbs are a, a really interesting place. And I had not had that experience before. And I didn't find it natural. I didn't find that I, I could kind of navigate it very well. And, and to be honest with you, I wasn't sure I was spiritually mature enough to, to be in that environment for the long term. Um, like I, I felt like I'd probably succumb to something I didn't want to succumb to at some point. And so we were spending a lot of time in the city in, in, during those years and kind of wondering if, if the Lord might ever, you know, allow us to serve in that space. Uh, and that's when we got introduced through, through a friend to a multiracial church on the north side of the city. And this was a church that intentionally pursuing 
doing multi-ethnic ministry for the sake of the gospel, wanted to, to be involved in church planting. And I thought, oh, I, I can, I have an imagination for that. I don't know if I could, you know, pastor a church like that, but I'd love to at least be around it and be in the room when, when those kinds of conversations were happening. Do you think it was your, um, your international experience that led you to be interested in multiracial stuff, or was there something else that was going on at this point? I do think that was a part of it. I think that I think that on some level, I just f- probably felt a little bit more at home in those kinds of spaces than in majority white spaces, where I always felt just a little bit out of the you know, kind of little disjointed. But I think by that point, I also had grown significantly in my kind of awareness of racial disparities. I had, I think I had kind of put together some theological and biblical connections that I, you know, had missed earlier on in my life. And so I think that there was certainly a draw to that multicultural space. But like, I remember living out in Glen Ellen and taking the Metro train into the city one, one night to, to do this march with Father Flager uh, around the, the Jenna, the Jenna, was it Jenna 6, Jenna 7? Yeah. Um and, you know, so I, I think I had, you know, something had had connected with me even while being out in the in the suburbs that I, I wanted to be in spaces that were pursuing racial justice um, as a sort of act of, of biblical faithfulness. Um, so I think that I think those both were happening for me. It seems to me that you like maybe this. Forgive me. You, did you skip like I call people like no shade to the particular organization? It seems like you skipped the promise keepers phase of kind of like racial awareness. What I mean I is think, what, yeah. what I mean for you who don't understand is there's this time around this time in the late nineties, early two thousands mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the promise keepers, at least as I stereotypically hear, cause I wasn't like in the sin of evangelicalism. This is the way it was received to me. We should pursue racial reconciliation. You should be in relationships and be friends with black right. people. Right. And it was like, we'll overcome racism. Exactly. But it seems like you skipped that phase and like are already into let's go and march for Genesis six. I think that's <laughs> right. Um, I, I and I think I'm sure part of that is generational, right? Like I think I was I was a little too young f- for that that Promise Keepers movement when it was really happening. A lot of what I understand about it has has come just from my own study, you know, later on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I ever had that highly individualistic relational understanding that if we can just be friends with each other, we, we will have fixed this thing. Um, I have my own, you know, thoughts about the importance of, of friendship, but I, that was never for me the, the, the driving force. I was, I was pretty interested in trying to get at some of the deeper causes. And so you then, do you eventually end up at this church? That, that you- Yeah. So that same friend who I met in graduate school ended up being um, called by that multiracial church through God's providence as their first associate pastor. So he and I would spend time together. I got to know the senior pastor that way. And then, you know, long story short, they eventually called me as an associate pastor. And then, uh, so this is up in the Logan Square neighborhood. Uh, they had already started the work of, of um, or kind of the groundwork of planting a church on the south side here in Bronzeville. Uh, they hadn't identified the the church planter yet, but there was some key leaders from the church who lived in the community, kind of discerned that this would be a, 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 a kind of hospitable place for for this sort of church. And so the lead pastor asked me to be involved mostly behind the scenes, kind of calling people together for prayer, making some connections in the neighborhoods, scouting out locations where the church could maybe meet. So I'm doing all of this, but with a very clear understanding, I'm not going to be the church planter because this is a historic black neighborhood. This is a multiracial church. I'm white. I'm the wrong person for this job. I I didn't want the job. Uh, We tried to, you know, I had conversations with with people you would know today, uh, trying to convince them to be the pastor of this this, uh, multiracial church. They, They all said no. 
no. The woman who's now our associate pastor, she said no. And so it, honestly, it was a few weeks before the, the, we were scheduled to have our first service that the senior pastor of the sending church said, all right, David, I think you're the guy, you're the guy. Uh, which, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend, uh, but in God's providence, probably the only way that I would have ended up pastoring this, this particular church. So from the beginning, it was, it was initially multi, it, it, it is and has been multiracial. What? From the beginning, from yeah, the beginning. and and the real gift was having you know a diversity, a diverse group of leaders from the very beginning, including I'm, preachers. I'm about to say, what would you say has been the has been the key to having like a healthy multiracial church? What has worked? What has made it work for you all? I do think having those leaders in place was really important. Um, I think as we, so we're a multiracial church that does have white people in it. We're about a third white and that's not true. There's, there's multiracial churches that don't have any white people in them. Yeah. Uh, but, but when there are mo- white people in them uh, and when the, the lead pastor is white, I, I, I think it's just, there's no way to avoid talking about uh, whiteness on a pretty regular ba- basis on, on sort of identifying the, the, you know, how whiteness works in these sorts of diverse spaces um, on, on the way that kind of racial whiteness and, and some of the assumptions that come along with it can sabotage the, the work of, of genuine community. So I, I think we started, again, not with that relational model, but, um, you know, really wanting to pursue this kind of beloved, just community and realizing that to do so, uh, we would have to tackle racial whiteness head on on a pretty regular basis. So what has been the the best part about that work and what has been the hardest part about it? I mean, well, that's such a good question, Esau. I, I, the best part is, um, hmm. I mean, there is frankly the, the, the relational communal element to it of, of sort of having the sense of, of belonging to an amazing group of people um, knowing that, you know, my wife and I are kind of embedded in this ecosystem of, you know, of, of phenomenal women and men of having, you know, we have two sons and knowing that they're growing up in this community is, is just such a gift, uh, you know, particularly in the, in the environment and climate that we find ourselves. Um, another huge gift has been seeing people grow in their own calls to ministry and leadership. We've had the chance to send out, you know, different pastors and church planters, seeing people grow in their gifts has been great. I, I love the the local community that we get to be a part of. Uh, we are, you know, one of the, if not the only non-Black church in the community. And, but we have these really deep relationships with a handful of Black churches and clergy in the, in the neighborhood that we've done a lot of stuff together over the years. And so, you know, when I say I, that, that I and we have friends in the neighborhood, it's, it's really true and has shaped our identity a lot. Um, I think on the on the hardest side of things for me as a as a white man pastoring in in this setting, I had to go through a kind of profound, um, you know, being taken apart by the Holy Spirit, and uh, the, you know, kind of coming into that with with this sense that I'm the wrong person for this. That you know, the the, the statistically most multiracial churches are led by white men. And, you know, I had this conviction that to really be genuinely a reconciling church, it would need to be led by a person of color, preferably, you know, black man or woman. And now here I am sabotaging that, that effort. Um, but also then just realizing that I, I couldn't rely on my instincts. I couldn't rely on my strengths in, in this particular context. Um, and that for a white man is not, a regular experience. You know, I'm used to navigating the world 
kind of being affirmed that my instincts are are good. And that was just no longer the case. And so the gospel had to become true in a a new way to me, um, where where God's strength really had to be evident in my weakness and my foolishness. And that was super, super hard. It's the best thing that ever happened to me in some ways. But man, those first few years were were a real kind of dying. Now this might this might be once again a tricky question, but forgive me for asking it. Is it hard? Um, because I mean you've read the literature, right? And you know that, you know, you would say, well, okay, then this should, you know, multiracial churches should not always be read, led by white men. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not the hard part that I want to ask you about. I mean, you understand that. How is it like, when you see like all of the criticisms of kind of white evangelicalism and all the things that like it is, you know, potentially done wrong and you feel like, well, my church isn't doing that. Like we're doing it the opposite way. How do you like... How do you not get arrogant and saying, like, I'm the white guy who knows all of these things? Like, how do you right. actually move through, like, with this awareness that, in some sense, you might you, you can separate yourself from this, like, larger criticism of this movement because you're not engaging in those practices? Like, how do you not, how you, how do you not feel like the expert? That's such a, that's such a pastoral question. It's like a spiritual director question right there, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm taking you to church. That's really deep. I love it. Uh, I think well, uh, two things. One, I just I make a ton of mistakes, um, and so I I, I I say this to my church, like like the our goal here is not perfection. Our goal is not to get everything right because the minute that becomes our goal, then we become blind to our mistakes because we 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 don't want to admit them because they're a signal then of of our of our failure. You know, so our our goal is to be confessional. Our goal is to be quick to to repent and, and to be forgiven, and you know, I have regular opportunities to do that uh, in, in this in this space. So I, you know, there's there's no end to, I think, my learning and growing and, you know, coming to a, to some kind of awareness of my own uh, blind spots and the things that I've 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 not seen, you know, willfully or not. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly kind of uncovering new new areas of, of growth, new areas of, of complicity uh, in sin and injustice. So it's really hard for me to, you know, to, to, to cast stones. Um, yeah. So I, I really do think that's the, that's the biggest part of it. The, the other piece, you know, is that frankly, that posture, that kind of more prideful self-righteous posture is just really unhelpful in this work of righteousness and, and, and reconciliation, uh, particularly if we're trying to get those who, who, who don't care or who uh, kind of are able to, to walk away or to ignore, uh, you know, any posture that says I have figured this out, is not attractive. But if I can, particularly with white people, if I can lead from a more confessional place, uh, if I can always use we and us language rather than you or them language, I think that's very biblical, but I, I also think it's just very, it's, it's just much more attractive and helpful uh, to, to draw people in to places where they might feel some shame or some, you know, some fear to, to go otherwise. Now, the people who, who are in this space, at least the African-Americans, we often talk about and they just actually people of color more broadly. We actually talked about like the criticism that comes when you start talking about these things. And we're called, you know, critical race theorists, Marxists, yes. like everything yes. but a child of God. Yes. Do you, I, I have two questions related to that. I'm gonna, let me ask them one at a time. Do you receive those same kinds of criticism or do you think that you're perceived differently because you're saying them as a white pastor? I do receive them. I think I am perceived a little bit differently. I think there can be a sense of being a, I mean, people wouldn't use this language, but being a race traitor is, you know, maybe how 
we, we would have heard this a while ago. I, I also think that I receive far less than my friends of color, and particularly uh, women of color uh, receive. Um, there, there, there is still this kind of um, aura of objectivity and authority that's granted to white men in these spaces. So I get it, and I get some pretty, pretty wild stuff. But when I compare it to other friends, it's it's still less than what they receive. I mean, maybe this is for like um, Richard is always talking about like for our listeners, and he's also talking about like the white people. <laughs> he's the white guy who comes in. And he comes in and asks the white guy question. But um, well, I'm asking you about like the, this is for our black listeners. We actually don't know what it's like to be like in the white room as the socially conscious white guy. So like I'm assuming that like you you're at dinner and, you know, it's five white people and they're just assuming they can be kind of somewhat insensitive. Like what is it like to kind of have been through this space and then you actually have access to rooms that we don't go to? Like I don't get invited to that dinner party where people kind of let their kind of racist flag fly. I'm not saying that you hang out with racists, but you listen to what I mean when I'm talking about. Like, what is it like to kind of be in those spaces and then have to kind of carry forth this work there in a place where black people don't often have access to? I I think about that at, you know, at the Thanksgiving table as being kind of one one example of that. I also think about it around more kind of leadership tables. Um, so for a while, I worked with our denomination around church planting and oftentimes the folks in the room making decisions about church planting were all white men. Um and and so it wasn't the overt racism, right? It was it was more of the kind of assumptions that that ran underneath the decisions that were being made. Um, and, and so I think sometimes there is that that real overt thing that was said, and you just you gotta just say you gotta stand up and and like say that that's crazy, and here's why. I think the 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 trickier work for for me has been in those those more subtle moments where you realize okay there's decisions being made here for example about how money is going to be spent or who's going to be tapped for leadership about what a uh what a flourishing church uh, would look like um there's decisions being made here that have all of these assumptions underneath them and so how are we going to have a conversation not just about the decision itself but about the assumptions underneath them that led to what they perceive to be an objective decision that's harder it takes more time it takes a lot of it takes a lot of trust i think um, and it's also the kind of thing that's easy to look away from. It's easy to ignore, um, but it's the thing that kind of perpetuates some of the systemic uh, prejudice that we see in a lot of our evangelical spaces where, you know, no one is going to clearly say something overtly racist. And yet all of these assumptions kind of proceed unchecked under the surface to keep things the way they are. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation. Now, I often get tired and doing this work and I get tired of people yelling at me or calling me things on the internet or all of these things but no matter how tired I get there's a sense in which I don't get to retire because I'm black and no matter what happens I'm still black in America like you could you could go to like Wheaton or no no much love to Wheaton (laughs) 
<laughs> I got to give much love to all of the people who I slightly shade. But you could at any point like check out of this. So like what is it that keeps you like continually engaged when there's like a pain that is avoidable? Like I can't avoid being black in America. You can't avoid like not, you know, antagonizing the white people in America who are going to then yell at you. So like what is it like what keeps you going when you feel the same fatigue that I do? Yeah, there's a, there's a pastor down here on the south side who says that privilege is the ability to walk away. Uh, and that that helps me, <laughs> you know, where, where, how am I, how am I utilizing that or choosing not to? Uh, I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I don't know how to read the Bible any other way. So I do feel like I would be unfaithful to scripture uh, if I were to walk away. Um, I, it, I'm, I'm deeply committed to my friends and I feel like walking away would be a betrayal to, you know, to my friends, um, if colleagues in ministry, you know, people in our church, uh, friends who, who I've done kind of life with for, for many, many years now. And so walking away in some way from, from this would feel like, um, you know, well, what has this all been about, <laughs> you know? And, and then lastly, it's just good. Like, is this just <laughs> really good? You know, I mean, what do I want to go back to like majority white spaces for? What do I want to go like be deeply embedded in white evangelicalism for? That's nowhere nearly as good as this is. You know the what money, I mean? The like money, the money's yeah. better. Just kidding. Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. I, was saying, yeah. I, was telling, I was telling somebody like, we know like as an African-American, I, I mean, obviously um, I'm half kidding. I wish I'm not. Like I know exactly the kinds of things that I could say. They could get me on yeah. the like black guy conservative speaking circuit. And I know the tweets. I know the people who connect with. And I think that within six months, I could just be, oh, I could be like there. Cause it's only like 10 of them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until they all cited <laughs> their article. You're like, it's not a lot of us. And so obviously you can say like at the, <laughs> at the expense of my soul, there's these yeah. things that I can go and do. That doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with me is selling out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that like I have these convictions. And for me to go in a different direction would mean me selling out. So black people on a monolith, they can have whatever views they want to have. And they can be be subject to critique like everyone else. But what then led you to get to this place then where you felt, okay, I've lived in this world. I've been here. I'm not giving up. I'm going to not only do this ministry, I'm going to write a book about it. So what led you to like rediscipling the white church. Yeah, I mean, it, it was this this sense of two different worlds and this sense that, you know, people in our church and our community were experiencing this particular moment in our country um, in one way, uh, often with some, you know, you know, fear or anxiety, concern <laughs> um, attached to that. And then uh, white Christians seeming to have very little interest in any of that. Um, and, and I would bring sort of the conversation that I'd had with people in our church or community to some of these white spaces, white Christian spaces and say, hey, here's 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 some of the conversation that's happening right now. Here's some of the concern that's happening right now based on some of the you know, kind of political rhetoric or policies that are being proposed. And, and time and time again, I was met with either just disinterest or more likely people would say, well, they don't just really, they, they just don't understand. They, you know, are missing some key information here. And so we can kind of discount that, that perspective. And I, I, I thought, well, what in the, what in the world is happening in these churches where white men and women are be, seemingly being discipled away from 
of this interest and care and concern and proximity and, and solidarity is the word I eventually landed on with their sisters and brothers in Christ. Why is it that that discipleship in these white spaces and these white churches is leaving white Christians content in our segregation and our complicity with injustice? And that, that was that was the question that started keeping me awake at night. And even though I wasn't really in those white spaces anymore, uh, there was this real sense of like, okay, I think this might be my assignment is to try to get my head around this and, and see if I can't articulate what's happening here. I'm glad that you um, use the language of discipleship because one of the things that happens to me all of the time is I'll go and speak somewhere and they'll say, okay, Esau, well, what kind of books do I need to go and read to like get what you get? And, you know, of course I can, you know, recommend Jamal, I can recommend Justin Gibney, I can recommend these books, but like really it's from the Bible. And so, like, people often get mad at me, and they say, oh, Esau, have you been reading critical race theory? Now, listen, I know nothing about critical race theory. Like, same, because, like it's same. not my discipline. It's not my discipline. I'm, like, a biblical scholar. So, like, I learned within my educational formation the basic tools of exegesis and history and theology. And so people say, well, how do I stop? How do I get this stuff? It's like Jesus literally says in his first sermon that he's here to care about poor people, and he cites these passages. Or, you know, it's called the Psalter or the Prophets. And so, like, I really just want to say to people, read the Bible without your your blinders off. And it really does mean, in some cases, oh, I never really saw that. I was like, it's just, it's right there. <laughs> and so it's like, it, it feels like you have to be discipled into not seeing these things. Exactly. In store, in, 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 and so part of it is to like reread your Bible and, and with these questions in mind. Is that what you mean when you start talking about like read? Because it feels like, there is an actual hermeneutic that like mm-hmm. allows people not to be able to see these things. Is that what you mean when you when you get at this idea of rediscipling? Yeah, the yeah. I, well, I'm I'm thinking about the way that that our, a racialized society is discipling us, and you know, I think that is what then leads to that that kind of hermeneutic that you're talking about, which. I would say willfully uh, looks away from so much of scripture um, or interprets it in a very, very shallow way. We are being discipled by a, a racialized society into what Eddie Gloud talks about as racial habits, which lead to particular assumptions and worldviews and, and how we navigate the world. And, and, and white Christians have not acknowledged that, have not seen that, um, which is a very particular thing. You know, many, many black congregations understand the way that that kind of secular discipleship is at work. Many, many Christians of color do, but because white Christians have not seen that there's a way in which we kind of baptize the racial status quo. Uh, we, we bring the racial hierarchy and its assumptions into our congregations. We leave it undisturbed. We don't apply the gospel to that, to that unjust hierarchy. I think a lot about Paul and Paul's language to the church in Corinth about the communion table and, and, and his anger at the way that those early Christians were bringing with them the status quo of their culture to the table, that the rich were coming in full to overflowing and a little bit tipsy, and then others were coming in hungry. And Paul said, that that's okay. That, that's how the world works, but it's not okay for you. I really think that Paul would say very similar things. Uh, to white Christians today about how we bring the, the the status quo when it comes to race with us to Holy Communion. Do you think that, I mean, I know that part of it damages like African-Americans and people of color suffer the consequences of kind of our brothers and sisters neglect. But like, how do you think like ignoring 
these problems or downplaying them or whatever you want to say does actual damage to the white Christian themselves in their churches. Like what are the ways in which churches are themselves harmed um, by not caring about these things other than just saying they're being disobedient, but like what, what does it do to actual ecclesial communities? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I try to get at in the, this in the book. It's, it's a tricky thing to, to even talk about, right? Cause to talk about how white people are harmed by race, yeah. you know, it, it, it can almost sound, uh, you know, irreverent in, in some way. Wendell Berry talks about the, the way that whiteness wounds white people. And I do think that's that's a helpful metaphor. I, I think that's right. So certainly on one level, it's just that the, the, the fractured community, it's the way in which white Christians, I think, have been racially discipled to not even desire fellowship with sisters and brothers of color. We would, we would talk about it. And, and if someone brought up the topic, we would sort of assent to, yes, that is the body of Christ. But but I, I genuinely believe that on the level of, of desires and loves it's not something that we we want we don't we don't miss it um and and the witness of the church is, is compromised by that I, I think on more individual levels the ways that 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 whiteness works is to is to create this kind of forgetfulness in a person you know to, to become white meant to leave a bunch of stuff behind meant to willfully forget some some god-given particularities and that that forgetfulness breeds this false sense of innocence right so that i'm not i'm not a racist i did not ever own slaves. I was not alive during the civil rights movement. And so this forgetfulness breeds this false sense of innocence, which turns into a kind of self-righteousness, which is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. And so the, 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 the wild thing for me is that in so many of these spaces where the gospel is held with such esteem and proclaimed you know, every single Sunday when it comes to the topic of race, because we've we've not addressed racial whiteness, we we leave this whole area of of self righteousness kind of undisturbed, and, and we end up appealing to it. And we you can watch it happen anytime someone even feels accused of of you know of racial insensitivity or, or racism, the appeal to self righteousness in that moment. So there, I think there's so many ways that I, that white people have, have experienced that stuff. I, one of the things that I miss un, that I underestimated when I began. It's funny because I'm like a Bible scholar who just kind of dips in over here. And when I say other people's expertise is I didn't I didn't expect the anger. Like I am in like the deep seated, like not like the mere idea that you can mention these things makes you work. Like there is no rhetorical boundary. to the way that, that black people are described, who talk about justice, like we're it's like the visceral hatred. And here's the thing. So like. Let's just say, like, if you think about it, let's talk about something like something like the spiritual gifts versus the absence of spiritual gifts. Like, there's one group of people who say, like, you can't do miracles anymore. And one group says that you can. And they kind of agree to disagree, right? Like, they kind of, like, live and, like, they don't go, like, those charismatics are vile. Who are, like, but we say, you know what? We think that there's still racism in America. Like, that's something that, like, if we're wrong, then, okay. Is it a greater error? But like the anger that like a, that that is attached to the question of justice and whether or not justice can exist in systems is an error that somehow reaches to the very heart of Christianity. And I think that here's the thing, though, I think that that anger is in part because they're correct. And this is what I mean: if we're right about our analysis of the American project, then the the churches that aren't dealing with this are complicit in it. And so I think they're recognizing their potential, the potential 
that not that when I say Christianity needs to change, I'm not talking about we don't trust in Jesus to saving work or that, you know, the Trinity isn't real or the, you know, that, you know, the dual nature of Christ is rooted in white supremacy. Forget all of that stuff. I'm talking about this idea that the way in which the way in which Christianity has positioned itself in American society and the way that it's treated other people, the actual ecclesial communities have to change. And I just wasn't, I was not prepared for the anger that would attach just making that suggestion. So given that, maybe I'll turn this into a question. Do you ever hope that the white church can actually be rediscipled? Significant portions <laughs> of it, 20% of it. Like, can, I mean, can this thing be like, yeah, I'll just ask you that way. Can the white church be rediscipled? Will, will, will the Lord spare the white church if there can be found just, just 20 faithful, <laughs> faithful, faithful people among us? <laughs> Do I hear 15? Um, yeah, I mean, your, 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 your observations there, I think, are so important because of it does get to the level of identity. And again, it's why I think we need to think about discipleship. I, you know, the question of hope is one that I... Um, uh, I don't know. Um, let me let me help, so, so let me help you. There's a, the resurrection has changed our plausibility structure. There's always hope. that's that's exactly right. <laughs> but that's go exactly, ahead, so, be, be, despair. Like as a, as a black man in America, I have to like lean hard on the resurrection every day. But I'll let so you here, answer the question. So here, here's here's um, Tanahasi Coates helped me a lot on this. Um, he he was asked about um, about hope and. His answer was to say, you know, there was a period of time in this country when an enslaved person would have absolutely no reason to believe that uh, his children or his grandchildren or his great grandchildren would ever be free, that there was nothing kind of around him that would lead him to to with any kind of certainty think that that would happen. He said, and yet um, this person um, and, and others like him continue to struggle for their freedom continue to fight for their freedom, organize for it, you know, run for it, um, plan for it. And, and he said, so, so for him, uh, hope is found in the struggle. Now, Coates is an atheist, but to, this is, a, to me, a very Christian thing to say, that, that the way that Christian hope in these matters is expressed is in our struggle for something that can sometimes seem, seem impossible, precisely for, for the reason you just said, which is that our, our hope is eschatological. Like it is rooted in, in, in the resurrection of Jesus, which is the first fruits, the, the kind of evidence of what will absolutely happen at Christ's return. Um, it's and so, so funny. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you because you talked about this, this Ta-Nehisi qu- quote. I didn't like that one. I didn't like, like that quote. But you you know what happened, though? You did the exact same thing that I did. You basically changed his meaning and you Christianized it. And this is what I mean. He he said, and at least if, I, if I'm reading him correctly, that he talks about like the different things also that happened to kind of lead to black freedom were in never in any sense inevitable, right? That like this speech here, this battle here, and had things kind of, because he's an atheist, had things gone another way, we wouldn't be in this place. And so, like, basically, it is the struggle itself that is meaning meaningful. And when I, I when I when I read that, and when I heard him talk about that, I I, I don't remember if it was in and it was between the world and me if it was when he was giving the talk. But I remember this part. And when I began to say, no, 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 those events that happened that led us to where we are now were under the sovereign hand of God. Yes, and of so course. when you look at, I talk about this in my book. When you look at the slaves talking, like when the when the slaves are free in D.C. They said this is this freedom is a manifestation of God's faithfulness to his promises. 
as a black Christian, I'm able to say I see in the entire narrative of God, of a black people in this country is that even in our darkest moments, we haven't been abandoned. And the reason we haven't been abandoned is the God who's sovereign over history. So I know you agree with that, but it's Come really on, preacher. That, that you took you took the Ta Nehisi quote quotes quote that the the truth is in the struggle, and you just like overlaid providence over it, and therefore it becomes like a Christian thing. And I did the same thing, but I just want to say like I think that like it's funny that quote and at least that ethos is like the subtitle of my book. When I talk about African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope, I'm try- I was trying to get at this idea that when you turn to, when the black Christian turned to these texts to find in those texts, whether or not there's a God who fought for them or against them, they said, yes. And that was the root. That's the basis of our hope. ta this thing's still like, well, no, it's just a fight itself from which emerges a hope. So I get it. I, you Christianized ta but I kept him atheist and made him a dialogue partner. I love it. That's great. Well, I, I want to say that that the struggle is the evidence of the hope. That's what I mean. The, right? str- the struggle itself is the. That's what I mean. Like it's, you see it's it. The, it. Right. It's it's the it's the evidence of the of the thing that cannot always be seen and cannot always be proved. Um. And and this, so that for me, this is also formational, right? Like I I I pastor a congregation, and I want to ask them, what's going to keep you in the struggle? What's going to keep you faithful? What's going to keep you obedient? To the to the way of Jesus, even when everything around you seems to be falling apart, we got a lot of teachers in our in our church um, who are you know teaching in, in in circumstances that are often very difficult, underfunded schools, etc. And I want to ask them, how are you going to keep saying yes to that assignment as long as Jesus gives it to you, even when everything seems to be crumbling around you? So we 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 need a hope that is is rooted outside of what our eyes can see. In this particular moment, I think there's reason to be encouraged. There's a lot of white people who are talking and and interested and asking questions. I have friends uh, of color who've been in this work for a long time who said that this feels unique. So I I think that's worth noticing, but I, I want to, I want folks to to stay in it, even if that weren't the case. And now since you, you mentioned this at the beginning, I was, I I was debating during our pre-interview time, whether I should ask you this question, but since you mentioned it in a way at the beginning, you talking about planning a church, I'll bring it up here now. So forgive me. Hopefully this is a fair question. One of the things that's been a big issue, at least not, maybe not a big issue, people who are kind of in these circles are looking at things like the, the suggest of like the success of white fragility and how there's this book written by a white author who's making all of this money. I mean, trust me, I know in a varsity, you know, like Christian books aren't making white fragility <laughs> money. So like, I know you're not trying to secure the bag, but what I'm saying is like, do you ever struggle with this idea that I'm writing this book? Um, about rediscipling the white church, and I'm speaking about these issues, while at the same time, like you said, recognizing that, like, oh, maybe I should have, you know, a black woman or a Latina woman or an Asian American woman speak to it. Like, and how do you reconcile that tension, or do you just sit with it? I, I think I mostly sit with it. Um, I, here's what helps me a lot. Um, you know, being embedded in the community that I am, having having mentors of color, spiritual directors, pastors who I'm, you know, genuinely submitted to as spiritual authorities in my life, who I bring these sorts of decisions to. And if they say no, then I don't write this book, right? It's just, it's not even, it's a, it's a, it's a non-starter. Uh, but if these, if these kind of trusted friends and advisors say, yeah, you need to do this, then I'm going to do it. And, and there's, 
there's many ways that that I did this book sort of out of out of obedience to some of those some of those friends and colleagues who who, who would say things like David, there, there's things that you need to say in some of these spaces uh, before I could say similar things in some of those spaces. And so, you know, I I've heard this particular assignment as one in which let me go sit in spaces that I would maybe not want to be in, maybe that are a little bit hostile or uncomfortable, um, but that as a white man I can walk in and I can have those those conversations. Uh, so that's a big piece of it. Having said that, it's still awkward. It's still it's still strange. There's just I don't think there's any any way around that. Being the, the, the being grounded and rooted in a local community though has has helped me significantly in that way. Because at the end of the day, what somebody says about me online is really a lot less important than what somebody in in, in our church says or thinks, right? Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that I when, I, when my students so. One of the things that happens when African-American, you start teaching about justice and you start doing the stuff in the Bible and my students get all emotional and they go, I'm all going to, we're all going to move to the inner city and do ministry there. And I said, well, hold on, hold on. There's parts of like rural Alabama, literally black people can't go. And there are all kinds of places to which I don't have access to. And there's all kinds of rooms that I will never enter. And it's almost like, you know, it's not the exact same thing that, you know, the demoniac where he says, go back and tell your, you know, your friends and your family. And so one of the things I encourage my students to do is to say, well, some of you may be called to do this work, but the more important places in all of these places where decisions are being made and there's these places to which your privilege gives you access, take advantage of those things and use it for your good. It's similar to me. I'm a male. I have, um, in, in biblical studies, I, w- I remember, um, I had some friends who would say, you know, we'd go in in kind of Bible world when you go to these conferences and then you kind of go to a bar or something afterwards. And people would never speak to the females who are there because they're like, I don't want to have any notion of impropriety. But part of what comes with networking and book deals is through relationships. And so I get the reason why some Christian men were saying, well, I don't want to have any relationship with these female colleagues because I don't want the appearance of things. But women pay a real cost for that. And so I said, well, no, here are the ways in which I can invite you into this circle. And so like when we got ready to write the, the next book that's coming out, New Testament in Color, there's two women and two men who are all together on the editorial team. And so that's the way in which I can use my privilege as a male to have access into these spaces to invite people into them or to even empower and suggest them to other to um, publishers and those kinds of things. And so I do think it's important for people like you who at least understand and who are sympathetic and who are not using it as an excuse to build their own platform to go into these spaces. So I'm sure that other people have already told you that. So write, keep re-discipling the white church. <laughs> the last question, though, let's say if you could close your eyes and say, this is the long-term outcome of this book in the life of the white church. What would you say occurs as a result? Like you can say, I did, you know, I fulfilled the task to which God had given me. So I I wrote this book with a few different friends in mind, pastors in mind, who pastor in, in majority white settings, who would consider themselves relatively apolitical, um, and yet who who do find themselves feeling troubled by what they see um, in our churches around the country, uh, the way that that white Christians seem more easily categorized by race than than by Christian faith, and and so I. I a, a win for me or something that would give me great joy would be if that pastor found in this book a resource where he or she could say, um, okay, I, I see our role now. 
I see that my congregation, my mostly white church and maybe a mostly white region of the country actually has a significant role to play when it comes to the reconciliation of the body of Christ. And it begins with discipleship. So that rather than feeling as though they're sitting on the sidelines, kind of wringing their hands, um, seeing how media and partisan politics are, are discipling their, their people, they now feel empowered utilizing the the practices that the church has discerned over the centuries to actually begin proactively rediscipling their their congregation deeper into solidarity with the body of Christ. If if that happens, I'm I'm super content. So what give everyone the name of your book again and tell them where they can find it and where they can find you on social media and all of that good stuff. Yeah, it's Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. You can find it anywhere uh, that books are sold. And my website is dwswanson.com and all the links are there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. One word that didn't come up a lot in this interview was the word ally. Yeah. But I am curious if you think of this interview as like uh, about how to be a good ally. There, man, I'm going to get in trouble. Don't ask me questions where I have to tell you the truth. I get it. But like I get the ally language and I get some of the discourse around it. But I want to make sure that I don't put myself in a position of power. And in every case that I'm the expert to tell a white person exactly how to advocate for justice. Mm-hmm. He is my ally. That's true, but he's also my brother. I think that the familial language of Christianity is important. Brotherhood can be used to like push back on issues of justice. So usually, when a white person doesn't want to talk about justice, they go, familial "Brother, language. are you okay?" Yeah, brother. Like, no, 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 don't brother me when you don't want to help me. Yeah. Right. So, like, I don't, I don't need paternalistic familial language to justify continually stepping on my hope. White Christians have a real bad habit of getting real familial when they want to tell us that we're being divisive. Uh And we're saying, no, 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 no. Because we're a family, you ought to help me. But if we're actually in the same family, then you ought to be with me. Those are the brothers. Those are the brothers. Yeah. So it's, it's not about being an ally. It's about being a brother. About being a brother or a sister. It wasn't like a how to be an ally. It was how to be a good Christian. The categories that exist in the sociological analysis of all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of it because I exist in the culture, but I'm fundamentally trained in biblical studies. So, yeah, I mean, somebody else might have like might have couched this in a allyship conversation. But I think this is more like, no, what does brotherly love require of you? I can give up now, I keep going, settle down, not ever knowing, won't let my history bury me, cause I ain't doing this just for me. I love the fact that his book was called Rediscipling the White Church. And he located the problem of the inability to stand on the side of justice with a failure of discipleship. And that's something I've always thought. I was like, well, these things that seem so controversial to people are just the ways that I was taught the Bible. And so I often find myself trying to push back on a hermeneutic that is so deeply formed that people think that's the only way to be Christian. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We would be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out.